What if you could complete your MBA in just one year? Thanks to the College of Charleston School of Business, now you can. Their accelerated MBA program condenses a traditional two-year program into one rigorous year, ensuring you not only save a year of tuition and fees, but also re-enter the workforce quickly and graduate with critical business knowledge. U.S. News & World Report recognized the College of Charleston MBA as number one in the country for its job placement rate within three months of graduation. Learn more at mba.cfc.edu. Opinions voiced in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. Each Saturday morning at 9, successful business leaders and entrepreneurs from across the Lowcountry talk about what it takes to succeed in business and in life. Now your hosts of Beyond the Business, Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood. And good morning, Lowcountry. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Business, heard here on 94.3 WSC every Saturday morning from 9 to 9.30. We're excited to have you here for another series, uh, Beyond uh, Beyond the Business, again, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work. They're ready to make an impact, and I'm one of your hosts this Saturday morning, Eric Cox, here with the lovely, the talented, although I can't see her, Leslie Haywood. (laughs) Hi, this is Leslie Haywood here. Thank you so much for sharing your Saturday morning with us, and make sure and continue to follow us at Facebook on Beyond the Business. Um, Good morning, Eric. Eric, good to good to see not see you. I've got your initials up on the screen, but we're making it work. We're doing this whole thing via uh, technology, and it's not the same as having you right there next to me, Leslie. I just must I know. Admit, I miss you. I know. I miss you guys too. When this is all over, we'll we'll be back in action. And we might have to do it in a celebratory style with margaritas in the morning or something, just for you. Yes, yeah, yes. I think you'd like that. Great. <laughs> well, <laughs> great Saturday morning to you, Low Country. Again, uh, thank you for you know, tuning the dial to 94.3 if you're listening to us via iHeartRadio. Or maybe you're even checking us out on podcast there at CoastalWM.com. We're excited to have you back for another week of stories of entrepreneurship and insightful leadership. And uh, we're going to have a follow-up show, as uh, hopefully you had the chance to hear Mr. Mike Seekings last week talk about kind of growing up and his journey that led him to the Low Country. Uh, Leslie, again, as we do week in and week out, just great stories. I mean, I love our mantra: people you know, stories you don't. Certainly held true last week with Mike because we all know a lot about him, but yet we found a lot of new nuggets out. I know. I had no idea that he was uh, Mike. We're going to talk about you like you're not even on here, but that <laughs> okay. he was he was you know born in England and his dad was a spy. Like how cool is that? <laughs> and living all over the world, and I just uh, it, it was it was awesome. And there was a quote, and you're the guy for quotes, Eric. Please, I know I got this wrong, but he followed location, not education, or something like that, which was amazing to hear. Um, it was it, really you got to hear the show from last week. 
Yeah, and I, I love the, you know, like we do with a lot of folks that come on this show, you hear the stories of the twists and the turns, right, in those moments. But you, when you look back, you know, those things aren't accidents, right? They're very fortuitous. They come at, at the appropriate timing in life. And Mike seemed to be very opportunistic each time one of those presented itself in his journey. And so thanks for sharing that, Mike. I know there's more actually twists and turns ahead as we talk today, but uh, really enjoyed the, the journey to where we are uh, as we left off last week. And, oh, certainly, and by, certainly fun talking about it. <laughs> and by the way, thanks for coming back and doing it again. Usually Leslie runs people off, so we're, we're glad you uh, agreed to come back and do it again. So um, as we had left off last week, Mike, uh, you know, we had just gotten to that part where you really had broken away from a firm, decided to go out on your own. I love the description you gave as a, as a young, new entrepreneur. And if you don't mind, maybe for those listeners who, who weren't a part of the show last week, give a little flavor and insight to what that early phase as an entrepreneur starting your first practice was like? You know, it's interesting because people generally, if you ask them um, to use 10 words to describe a lawyer, I I doubt any one of them in the first instance would be entrepreneur, right? I mean, there's lots of words and descriptive words. You know, people (laughs) think of lawyers who sit there and they churn out the hours, they send out bills. So the practice that I had become part of and that I knew and that I knew I was going to pursue for the rest of my career as I started my own practice and my own firm was representing owners of buildings. And, you know, no, I haven't sent a bill out. I can't tell you the last time I sent a bill out. So, you know, the whole entrepreneurial side of it was, uh, w- was difficult. I mean, you know, being young and sort of just starting out there and having no sort of income stream, it was, you know, put out a business plan out there that in the law, it's, you know, it's your intellectual property. It's who you are. It's your education. It's your reputation. It's your experience that you send out there and you capitalize on. Right. And that was what I, what I did. I took my experience both through the times I clerked for federal judge and my young days representing people in the construction and design industry and went out and sort of marketed myself. And and that that was a a big part of what I did. I wasn't sitting there churning hours. I was out there banging on some doors, trying to do some things that were a little bit different. And again, I was timing was pretty good because of what was going on in the growth area in terms of construction and building, right, back in the early 90s in the low country. But um, it was a, it was a, as I look back on it, y'all have asked me to do it as I sit and talk to you, it was a, it was a tough time, but it was fun. I mean, it was exciting to get out there and you know, make your own way. And uh, that's, from the entrepreneurial side, that's what it's all about. And I've never looked back. It's been great. So, in those early days, you had mentioned last week that literally your first client came upon you as you were on the floor trying to put a desk together, and she came upon you, and you looked more like a construction guy than the lawyer. Like, what was that case like? How did that change, you know, your views on things, and where did your business go from there? That is a fact. Janet Knorr, God bless her, walked right in on King Street, and I was on the second floor putting together a desk. Uh, I looked up at her, she looked down at me. I'm sure there was a, a, a moment of silence there that was probably awkward, and she described to me she lived in a community out on the Isle of Palms that was having some problems, among other things, with a seawall uh, and some of their townhouses and condominiums, and off I went with her and wandered around, took a look at it, and that was my first case on my own as a young lawyer that I brought on behalf of those homeowners that had some problems. Um, and again, that was sort of what set the stage and just built it from there, built it from there. Um, and as I think back, that case was the sort of the headwaters of everything we've done since. 
Do you know where she got your name from? Do you, how did she find you? Did you ever find out? Yeah, I did from, from a mutual friend. She was looking for a lawyer who didn't do the kind of work I did and said, well, this guy's seeking. He literally just went out on his own. This is what he does. Go find him. And so she didn't call me. She, she walked into my then just opened office and came and literally grabbed me. So she, she, by the way, is my MVP in a lot of ways, because that led that case led to about three other cases that I represented her or groups that she was involved with. A lot of what I do is represent homeowners associations and groups, large groups of people, condominiums, things like that. And she, after she moved from where the the, the area that I represented her the first time, she moved into another area of wild dunes that had a massive problem with about a six thousand foot seawall. And I got involved in that case. So she sort of brought me along as she moved. She brought her lawyer along with her, and it turned out she, she just happened to move to places that needed my particular skill set, which is representing someone who has some problems with uh, construction. So, <laughs> good old Janet. Janet and Ed, they were fantastic. We became good friends over the course of time. Now, my certainly as the as the journey of life unfolds in, in our uh, professional and personal lives, right? We all have people we look to and mentors that have guided us. If you look back through your journey, uh, either the early years or maybe since then, are there some folks out there that you can point to that really were just great sounding boards for you? Well, there's no question that there there was no one can do it on their own, right? We all need people to guide us uh, in the right direction and head us in the right direction. You know, it starts with family, my father, for sure. But in my professional career as a lawyer, um, it starts with the conversation we had last week about Judge Governor Donald Russell. I mean, he was a guiding light for me. He set the tone early on for what it means to be a professional, a lawyer a gentle person, a committed person, someone who stays the course through good and bad times. And, you know, he's a man who led by example. Like I said, he was a U.S. senator. He was a judge. He was the president of the University of South Carolina. And he was a super fair and balanced person. And I remember I was traveling with him one day. We rarely, we'd sometimes we'd fly together, sometimes drive. We were flying up to Richmond and we were walking through Charlotte Airport. It was somewhat late at night. And there was a gentleman who was asleep on one of the chairs with his head straight back and he was out cold. And, and the judge looked at him and he looked back at me, he looked at him, he looked at me again. And he said, there's a man with a clear conscience. And I've always remembered that, that's, you know, do the right thing. Don't have to worry about looking back and you will be okay. And that lesson has stuck with me through all of my life, particularly in my professional career. And I'm, since I've been here in Charleston, I mean, Rob Robertson gave me my first break. Uh, he's my neighbor. He was my first boss when I was here. I worked for him and he sort of taught me all the ropes. Um, and, you know, we we uh, locked horns a lot and that was probably okay too, uh, but have really taught me along. And then, you know, Charleston is an incredible repository of people of substance and commitment, and especially around the legal community. It's been really amazing to just have them be part of my life. There's so many. I don't want to single out, but just the bar is itself. So many friendships, but friendships that were born of guiding you through legally. Um, it's been fantastic. Now, you talked about getting into the industry, you know, kind of around the post-Hugo days, and now you see the rebirth and the resurgence um, of Charleston again and again. How have things changed in your job, your profession, your industry from back then to what's going on now? How are things different? 
Well, I, I sit for I see it a little bit from a different perspective, um, having spent all those years as this area is growing, representing people who had some problems along the way um, with their construction. Now, having spent 11 years on Charleston City Council at a time, and I would argue, and I think it's probably true if you go back and look, in the 11 years since I've been elected, we've probably never seen growth and resurgence in this area that we've, it's, it's the most we've ever seen in history, right? If you go back to 1670, this is the time where, until the last couple of months, it has just taken off in a way that nobody imagined. And being part of the management side of that in terms of growth, I mean, what does the city council do? What do cities do after they make you safe with police and fire? Zoning, that's what we do for a living. We are, we are the keepers of zoning and keepers of good and reasoned and thoughtful growth. And so having been part of that as we've gone through this next time and, and sort of balancing my practice, which has certainly become less and less of a force in my life, and the government side, which has become more and more a force, it's just been a different look and a different view of um, this area. And fascinating. And, you know, every day has been new and you know, there's lots to talk about, right? I mean, we've grown very rapidly here. And by the way, in case you're wondering whose voice that is, it's Mr. Mike Seekings here on Beyond the Business, presented by the College of Charleston School of Business. And Mike, speaking of you know, public service, obviously you, you had a calling into that as a professional. You probably could have just stayed on the, the path of running your business and life would have been a lot easier, right? But you have this calling and you go into public service where now you've, like you said, you've been a councilman for 11 years. You, you ran for uh, mayor and uh, a runoff here uh, last fall. You're currently chairman of CARTA here in Charleston. You're the interim race director for the Cooper River Bridge Run. It goes on and on and on. My, my question really is, talk about what it's like to have a calling like that um, and, and how you really are able to serve sort of the two roles of being a professional and entrepreneur, yet serving this community the way you do. Well, I think being a professional entrepreneur gave me the ability to do that, right? I mean, having had a good foundation, a good career, gave me the opportunity to give back in the community to the community in a meaningful way in a way that uh, I think fit my skill set and afford me the opportunity to spend enough time at it or even more maybe so than I thought to make sure he did it the right way and so when I thought about you know, I was what 40s thinking about how do you give back to community other than just sitting out there being a, a lawyer and representing people who've got some issues I really wanted to do that and I thought where does my skill set lie and I sort of again harken back to Judge Russell who among the things he did was an elected official and always talked about giving back to the community in that way and I committed myself to see if I could at the entry level get in and become a city councilman and you know the the job requirement there is one that is get more votes than the other person right that's the <laughs> that's the only job requirement um, you have to sort of ramp up and and so I remember when I when I thought about this and and, and no matter where you run at any level um, putting your name on a ballot is scary right I mean your name is out there people looking at it going yes no maybe um, I remember when I thought about running for city council like when Joe Mayor Riley was the mayor and it was you know he was a legend and certainly an opportunity to spend some time with him on the professional side I knew him personally. Um, there were two people who had total veto power over me running. One were my law partners at the time, Jeff Leith and Tim Bouch, and I went to them, and they're like, no, no, 
we want you to do it. We support you 100% because getting elected, I mean, it was going to be a big time commitment. The other was my wife, Michelle, and she looked at me as if I was freaking crazy, right? <laughs> like, what are you out of your mind? So about three or four negotiations later, off we went on a journey. And, and the mission was to bring a message out there and see if we could get elected. I ran against a 20-year incumbent, by the way, which back then was tough to do. And the message was, let's think about Charleston as a place that's livable. And uh, I've sort of stuck to that ever since. When thinking about, if someone is thinking about public service, which is such a, a noble thing to do, I don't, I, yeah, I don't have the chops for it. But if someone is thinking about it, what is maybe some, a myth that people have or a misconception about being um, it, on city council or whatever it might be? Well, so, so it's a great question. And, you know, there's lots of myths out there. But one of the things I tell people if they're, they're interested or they're not interested or they know or they don't know, the best way to demystify any myths that may be out there, and one is that it's unattainable for just anybody. You have to be connected and all that. That's actually not true. But if you want to demystify anything that worries you about putting yourself and offering yourself for public service, go work on someone's campaign who you like and believe in. And see what you think about that. If you go work on a campaign, you will see on the inside what politics is all about at the base entry level, which is the election process. You learn about your candidate. You learn about others out there. You learn about whatever job it is that they're running for, whether it's city council, U.S. Senate, or anything in between, or president. Go work on a campaign. And I, when I teach at the College of Charleston, I always tell my students, you know, if you get an opportunity, go work on a campaign for someone you believe in. And it's amazing how many of them have gone out there and done that. And now some have gotten themselves involved in politics, which is great. That's great advice. That's yeah. awesome. And I've had some of my students working on uh, a few of my campaigns, including the pr prior mayoral campaign and my previous city council election. Um, and I think it was great experience for them. Uh, it's hard work, by the way. You get in, it's, it is hard work. Very blue collar. That's another, I think, myth. People think, oh, you just put your name out there. It's super easy. People come and vote. They don't vote. It is hard work. It is um, getting out there and getting your message out and getting people interested and getting people to go vote, right? I mean, that's a, that's a big part of it. Yeah, Mike, you mentioned, I can't remember if it was earlier in this segment or last week, something about you know, you're learning more today than you ever have in your life. And Effort. I got to imagine going through the mayoral run in the fall was maybe one of probably the, the, the biggest education moments of your life. Talk a little bit about what that process was like and if you can remember maybe a story or something that, that really resonated that you could share with us today. Well, you know, it's the setup. I mean, I, I when I got involved in city council and looked at the city and what was going on and thought about the skill set that I could offer, they kind of matched well. It was nothing personal about anybody else. I just thought kind of the next step for me was that management position in the city, which is the mayor's job. The mayor is the chief executive officer of the city. We as council are the board, right? If you think of it from a business perspective, that's what it is. So, you know, for me, it, that was that was the next step and sort of the training that went into that, being on city council, being chairman of traffic and transportation committee, being involved with CARTA, being the chairman of CARTA and transportation, which is something I've been wildly interested in. I mean, th those were all the setups that got me to get into the campaign. Campaigns are never what you think they're going to be. Uh, this one, the last mayoral campaign, certainly was no different. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. It was, um, it was a battle for sure. Um, no regrets. Happy to have done it. And it, there's so many stories of of individual people support. But the thing that got that really I thought was fantastic was the number of people we were able to get engaged, young people that are involved in the community that hadn't previously been involved from a political angle. They had businesses, raising families, but had never really gotten involved in the political 
process. And the number of people in the 30s and early 40s who, for the first time, got involved and will now stay involved, to me, that was a huge win for this community because I think you'll just have a really much more robust populace that's engaged and understands the issues because of it. And there was lots of issues, right? There's lots going on in our community to talk about, and people are aware of them now. So that was great. That's awesome. Um, what is on the horizon for Mike Seekings in any of your capacities? I mean, we're all kind of on pause right now to some degree, but when the economy, when everything gets going, what are some of the things, irons in the fire you got? Well, right. I mean, we are on pause in some ways. I think in our minds, we think the world's on pause, but there are things going on, and I could point to a number of them. I mean, we meet every single day at city council to think about all the things that a city should be doing to keep people safe and informed, right? Right now, I think our principal job is disseminating good and valuable and accurate information um, so people can make decisions, and we can make decisions based on that information. But other things going on, too. We at Carta have a lot going on right now. We are still in the process of thinking about replacing our fleet, modernizing our service, making it as good as we can be. Transit is an essential service out there. We're up and running right now through this through this COVID-19 challenge. We're up and running. We've got customers, although not as many as usual, we're moving still hundreds of thousands of people a month through the CARTA system. So keeping them safe, keeping our drivers safe, but also thinking about the future. Low Country Rapid Transit, which is the biggest transit project that we've ever seen, the only large-scale transit project this region has ever seen, is in the planning stages right now. We work on it every day. So gathering information at the city council level through you know, all the available um, avenues, and then keeping things moving. Full days. There's still full days. <laughs> and so, Mike, you know, we all look back on, on that Monday morning quarterback moment, right? We, we right. looked at when the Navy base closed and what that meant to Charleston ultimately. And then Hugo, like you said, and what it ultimately meant. But during the moments, you know, we had no idea how Charleston was going to survive. What do you think history will look back on this moment and prevail? That That's such a good an interesting and difficult question. And one of the things that I think is true of these times, which have now been essentially 60 days for us since we shut things down, is that what was true 10 minutes ago may not be true 10 minutes from now. I mean, last week we had a conversation, we're on the show now, the week later, um, and we can't really hold people 100% accountable for everything they say because things change so much. So here's what I think. I think if we look back on this, depending on what the end result of it is, is that we maybe... Um, need to think about this type of challenge in our lives well ahead of it coming and and agree as a community that there are going to be times that we're going to have to make some bold and tough steps um, which not everyone's going to agree with and come together as a community I think if this goes the way I think it will we'll look back in 10 or 20 years now and go and say, that was really tough. Maybe we weren't as prepared as we should have been, but we did come together as a community, and it could have been a lot worse. Uh, that being said, it is so uncertain right now. I mean, as we sit here in May of 2020, there's every day there's something new, right? Every day. Every day. Every day. Yeah. Have you already, you and the city council, not to you know say that you've already made mistakes, but have you learned already things if there is a next time, if there is a next virus, Definitely. what to do? 
Definitely. And one is listen more and talk less. Um, you know, you got to listen to what's around you and listen to people who really know. And so, so anecdotally, I'll just tell you this. When this first came about and we were in early March, I was actually traveling a good bit, came back to Charleston. Things were starting to get worse. Things were starting to shut down. We were wrestling internally at the city. What do you do? The mayor is wrestling. Do we shut down restaurants? Do we shut down the city? And we were continuing to put things off. And I will tell you what really started the process of us backing things down a little bit was the restaurant industry came to us. They had a meeting one morning, nine o'clock, Charleston Place, Mickey Basque got a whole team of people and they said, look, we need to shut down. We need to shut down. We don't want a bunch of regular, we need to shut down, take a deep breath and let this pass. So government is there, I think, to listen to the experts. And I, I, I just don't, I don't think we got off to a great start with that, um, but we've gotten better at it, um, right. a lot better at it. And I, I think that's a lesson that we all should learn. We are not inherently expert at anything. Like I said, the only qualification to get to be an elected official is to win an election. But to understand pandemics and to understand business, you have to have a little bit more than that, right? And there's lots of people out there that do. So listening is always a good, always a good lesson to learn. And really, uh, again, back to the, the the mantra of our show about um, entrepreneurship, you still have a business, right? And so, what right. wisdom and, and words of nuggets could you give to those entrepreneurs like restaurant owners and others that are out here right now trying to navigate this time just to help, uh, again, give them a better understanding of, of how to make it through it? Well, first... I, along with everyone out there, we get it. This is really tough, especially if you're a small business person. This is the toughest time that you've probably ever faced, and with any luck, will be the toughest time you ever face. And to anyone who's listening that is a small business person, we're listening to, um, and we need to hear from you to what you need within reason. And I, and I think for small business, as you come out on the other side of this, and I'm a small business person too, and I was sitting talking to Brittany today about what our business is going to look like, is to recognize that there'll be some challenges as we come out, but things will change. And I think change for the better, and don't be afraid of change. But um, it's tough times. I'm sitting here looking, I mean, Charleston, right? We're talking about Charleston. Charleston is a tourism driven economy. I'm looking at our numbers from last year. Last year, in 2019, in the fall, we had 40,000 hospitality jobs in the region with an annual economic impact of $8.1 billion. Essentially, today, that is completely dried up. I mean, we've gone from bullet train to hitting the wall. No one has a roadmap or a playbook for how it looks coming out on the other side, other than to say, we're in it together, we're going to listen, we want to partner with you, and we all need to do it collectively. Uh, and if we don't, um, you know, it'll be even more of a challenge. But those numbers are staggering, right? Staggering. It is. Wow. Well <laughs> Leslie, Leslie, one one minute left. What do you end on a quick wow. lightning round for us? Yeah. Mike, we we like to do this lightning round. People you know, stories you don't. I'm going to fire some questions at you. What's the best book you've ever read? Uh, the best book I've ever read is The Once and Future King. The thing you are most proud of in your life right now? Well, I mean, family, always proud of. And, and, and being part of a city and working really hard to it and being part of a collective. I mean, I'm really proud of being part of a team. That's always been a mantra of mine, being a team. And number one thing on your bucket list, what do you got to do? 
Well, it was to go up and teach at Harvard Law School, as I told you. Yeah, but, I know. But, but check. I mean, for a check, got to do that. Um, number one on my bucket list is to um, see us come up here with a plan sooner rather than later for how we're going to deal with sea level rise in this area. Sea level rise, yes, very important. Awesome. And it's, and it's not ironic, by the way. You go back to his first opportunities in law, and it was dealing with sea level and seawalls. So, Mike, right. it's been a part of your life all the way through, huh? Mike Seekins, thank you so much for your time, your story, and your energy. And and on a separate note, we just appreciate your service and leadership to this community. You've always shown a great commitment, and I know you will continue to lead us into the future. So, thank you, sir. Well, thank you all so much for having me, Eric and Leslie. I look forward to seeing you out there in the community. And anything I can do for you, please just holler. Absolutely. And that's another edition of Beyond the Business, heard here on 94.3 and brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work. They're ready to make an impact. And until next Saturday morning, Low Country, have a blessed week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work. They're ready to make an impact. Tune in next Saturday morning at 9 for Beyond the Business, hosted by Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood, and heard exclusively on News Radio. 94.3 WSC. The College of Charleston School of Business is recognized among the top 30 colleges for studying business abroad by the Business Research Guide with nine undergraduate majors, 10 minors, and six concentration areas, an honors program in business, and master's programs in business and accountancy. The College of Charleston School of Business has more than 3,000 students enrolled. Their students are ready to work, and they're ready to make an impact. For more info, visit sb.cfc.edu.